Hello and welcome to episode 190 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is the British actor Jamie Bamber. We get to sit down and talk all about his acting career to date, including his roles in Marcella, Law and Order, and of course I didn't miss out the incredible masterpiece of TV, Battlestar Galactica. And this interview will be coming up in just a couple of moments time. But let's use the intro to touch base and talk about my last episode. On episode 189, yes, I was joined by Charlie Cox, Daredevil himself. The interview was my most downloaded episode that I've released this year. And I want to say a massive thank you for all the amazing feedback, all the new listeners that have now jumped on board the Mark and Me train. And I just want to hope that you all stick around because there's so many more episodes coming. And I hope you can delve right into the archive and listen to all 190 episodes that are available right now, free of charge on all those podcast platforms. But let's get back to today's episode. I'm a huge fan of Battlestar Galactica. So when I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Jamie, it was a no-brainer, and I absolutely love this guy. The interview's really chilled, he's really positive, really open, really honest, and everything that I can ask for for a guest. So I think the best thing to do right now is to get to the interview. So here's me and Jamie talking all things TV and film. So Jamie, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. My pleasure, Mark. It's lovely to be with you. What I want to do today is, for any listener that's discovering your work for the first time, is take it back to the very start. So can you tell me about when you were growing up? Was it quite early, maybe at school or during college, that you knew you wanted to be an actor, or was it later on in life? Yeah, I think it was quite early, um, although it's one of those things that you don't tell your mates. Um, <laughs> you keep it to yourself, at least, or at least that's the way I sort of coped. Um I I have my mum to blame, really. She 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 was a Northern Irish girl who left Northern Ireland for the first time to go to drama school in London, and she she became an actress. Um, she married my dad, who was quite a bit older than her, and they moved to Paris. And whilst in Paris, uh, mum wasn't working, so she started a theatre group based at the American Cathedral there for the sort of expat American. My dad's American. I've got a- yeah say um for, for a bunch of expat americans and she directed plays for kids so she, okay. started, she started a theater group and um i don't remember ever being given an active choice about whether i participated or not um my first memory is is going on stage to perform as the wicked witch of the west in green makeup and you know the conical hats and cackling i'll get you my pretty amazing did they um, use like a carrot or something for your nose to make I, the little... <laughs> I, I, probably, probably, but it, it's very strange. I don't remember. I mean, I, remember, I have very good memories of my childhood, um, good in both senses, as in clear and, and very positive. But I don't remember rehearsing. I just have this formative memory of, of doing that and it having, <laughs> having some effect and it, it working. So I don't sort of remember the moment where I thought, oh, might might join up to the acting thing. It just sort of was a was an experience that I, you know, seemed to be railroaded into, and I don't think it's something I would have gravitated towards. I'm not particularly, you know, showoffy or or want. I don't want attention of strangers anyway. I want attention of friends. And yeah. Family, but I don't seek the attention of people I don't know. Um, I'm quite diffident. I sit on the edge of groups before I work out what's going on. 
So yeah, it's it's my mum to blame. But then after that, every new school I went to, we moved back to London when I was seven. The school play was just an opportunity for me to be to to express a different part of who I am, and it was never really a conscious decision. I just knew that I would always audition for the school play, and I so there was no decision. But then the the big decision came as you know when you, when you start sort of admitting, fessing up that actually you're taking this a bit more seriously than everyone else and you um, would love to, to make a living doing this. And um, that I didn't admit admit to anyone, even maybe myself, until until I was at Cambridge at university. And um, when everyone started to go to careers fairs, um, you know, yeah, they'd go off and be courted by merchant banks and stuff. I didn't do any of that. And everyone was going, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm applying to four drama schools and we'll see what happens after that. So I, you know, deferred the choice to the drama schools. If they would have not taken me, I suppose I would have had to rethink. I suppose at that age as well, when you're at university and at that age group, you haven't got to lie as much. I bet when you were at school and everyone's like, so what are you doing uh, tomorrow? Yeah. You wouldn't be like, well, I'm going to my mom's drama school and getting painted yeah. up as a witch. I bet you were like, oh yeah, I'm playing football and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. doing that. Exactly. Well, you know, when we moved back to England, mum didn't uh, continue working uh, doing the doing the theatre group. So it was very much me. She would encourage me. Like if, if I had an audition, she would help me with it. Yeah. But very, very relaxed. You know? um, and uh, I was very sporty. So I was in all the football, rugby, cricket teams and, and all that. So I had a bunch of friends who were, you know, the sporty types. And they were always a bit surprised when I would pop up in the <laughs> Especially as you get older. I mean, I think school plays are sort of fair enough when you're 10, 11. Everyone's sort of okay with that because everyone's... You kind of have to as well. Everyone's in the chorus. Yeah, yeah, you have to be involved somehow. If you're going to be in the chorus, you may as well step out and, you know, get a a solo spotlight at some point. But the the moment that all changed was when I went to the senior school and about 14 and I had the lead in in the junior play at school. And then your mates from the rugby team come and watch you on a Saturday night. And um, <laughs> quite interesting, the response. Um, I have to say, mine, mine were very encouraging and a rounded bunch they were. But it, I, yeah, I, I always had a foot in three camps and that continued all the way all the way to Cambridge where I sort of had a pattern over my three years. I, I would play rugby quite competitively in the first term for the college and the university. And then in the second term, I would do a play and then in the third term, I would uh, catch up on all the work that I'd missed and try and pass an exam or two. And that's really what I did for all, all three of my years. Uh, and when did it become a reality that you you said that obviously you were applying and looking at all these different options and wanting to be involved and everyone else was probably doing the academical stuff of business law degrees and all these sorts of things. When was it for you that it clicked that you thought, actually, I'm going to take this and when I go to these career fairs, I'm going to make a go of it and actually become an actor. Can you remember those first auditions or those those days that yeah. it became reality? No, I, I really can. Uh, it, it was in my final year. Um, I realised, you know, that, that my, my, my dad, because I guess he'd married an actress, um, was quite circumspect about the prospect of me doing that. And I, I can see why. I look back now and you think, Here's a young guy who's you know, he's bright, he's doing well academically, he's got every opportunity in the world to do whatever he wants to do. Surely he should consider other things other than this hobby of his, which has always been the case. And he'd seen my mum and my parents were divorced at that point and, and dad actually, um, his, his partner of the last 30 years is another actress. So he's, he's really seen it firsthand. 
Um, and it, he he was he he was sort of worried about it. Mum encouraging. Then Mum's new husband um, sent me all sorts of uh, applications to the Foreign Office because <laughs> I was studying, wow. I was studying languages, um, and so they were all you know saying, "Well, you're perfectly placed to go into this." And looking back on it, um, yeah, and I think I would have loved it. You know, I've got friends now very high in the Foreign Office who are doing wonderful things for the country and you know really interesting career paths they've they've chosen. Um, and there is a bit of me that looks at them and go, why didn't I even consider that? But I didn't. What I had in front of me was brochures for drama schools. And again, it, I don't know if it's a coward's way of doing it, but when you're at Cambridge, acting is quite competitive at Cambridge. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of personalities. You know, there, there's a well-trodden path between, you know, the amateur dramatic club, the ADC um, at, at Cambridge, the Footlights and, you know, the professional acting world. And there's a big, sort of battle for agents and stuff and I wasn't really in the center of it so my decision was I'll apply to the best four drama schools that offer a one-year postgraduate or two-year course I didn't want to do three I didn't want to yeah. go back to the beginning so I'll apply to all four of the what I consider to be the best and if I get in I'll go if I don't that's it I'm not going to kid myself anymore okay uh, I, I will I will look at other options but you know I left no stone unturned I made sure that my audition pieces were tight and I, I went and I got into all four and I just, I chose Lambda and I went to do this, well, at the time it was called the one year classical acting course. And it's like all the highlights of English theatre basically. <laughs> in one year. In one year. Yeah. Wow. You, yeah. Yeah, exactly. One year. So, you know, you, you start with Shakespeare, you move to restoration comedy and Jacobean tragedy and then on to Chekhov uh, and, um, you know, sort of, well, you never quite get involved in the 20th century, but you go right up to the classics of the 19th. And it was a wonderful year. For me, it was just an expression of everything condensed that I've been doing at Cambridge whilst getting a formal indication of what three years of real, you know, the drama school polished training would be. And then, and then getting spat out into the workplace after a year, which is what I really needed. And I, you know, I wanted to get along with life. My friends were starting work professionally and, yeah. I, and I wanted to be doing the same. Um, yeah, and it was wonderful. I'm very grateful for the time I had at Lambda. And I suppose at that point as well, you actually want to be receiving some money of some sort as well, so you can eat well, and live and have a normal life. That's it. I mean, you know, I'm old enough that we had free university education when I went to university, so there wasn't the huge debt that you come out with now. But yeah, drama school was expensive. We had yeah. drama school, and my mum helped me with that. Um, but then afterwards, yeah, you're just mindful that if this is a going concern, if this is actually going to be a career, I need to start working. And the things that happen at the end of any drama school training is, you know, the agent conversation starts happening and agents, you start writing letters and getting invitations to showcases and stuff. And we had a showcase in the West End and a showcase at Lambda. We had two. But our course wasn't the course that everyone gets excited about because it's not the one where, you know, they, they encourage their star actors, young actors to go and do a three year training. And I didn't want to do that. So we were on a course where there were a lot of um, international um, students, a lot of Americans, a lot of yeah. Scandinavians, English, French guy, you know, from all over the world, basically. So it wasn't the one that agents clamor to go and see because uh, they, it was a bit hit and miss. Yeah. But I was very lucky. I got interest from three or four different agents. I, I, I took representation from a couple just as an, on an ad hoc basis while I was still at drama school. And then I went to audition for the Hubbards, um, big casting directors in London while I was still there for 
I think it was an independent film. Um, and then they ushered me down the corridor to meet a director um, for this new Hornblower um, television. Amazing. Series. So that was my first successful audition. Um, I auditioned for Hornblower. Well, it wasn't successful, actually, because I auditioned for The Lead, and we did a screen test. And obviously, my, my now great friend, Johan Griffith, got the title role, but they, they found another role for me in it. Um, and uh, yeah, that was my first gig. So I had that in place um, when I finished uh, Lambda. Had to wait a couple of yeah. months for it to start. But that that was really weird because television had never ever been on my radar. It wasn't it wasn't what interested me. I was interested in the theatre and and film to some degree. Obviously, everyone's a fan of films, but I never watched television drama growing up. Very rarely, like only when it was a Dennis Potter or Brighton, you know, one of the big yeah, ones of course. The whole, that the whole country stopped to watch. I wasn't like watching the regular TV drama. It wasn't on my radar. I was much more of a fan of of classical theatre, and I would get on the train and go into the RSC and the National and watch Mark Rylance and Derek Jacobi and wow. whoever, whoever was on the stage at the time. Um, I mean, it's, it's really strange, isn't it? Because then obviously your career panned out in a, a different wave to that and it's mostly TV. And, you know, yeah. a year after you wrapped up Hornblower, a lot of my listeners are huge sci-fi fans and huge TV fans. And if I don't mention Battlestar today, they'll just be like, you know, I'm not listening to your podcast ever again. Yeah. Um, but you invested so many years in that show and it is genuinely in all the top 10 TV shows of all time, isn't it? It's up there with Sopranos. It's up there with Breaking Bad, Lost. Everybody loves Battlestar Galactica. So to be involved in such an amazing show only a year after wrapping up Hornblow must have been incredible. Yeah, and it still is looking back because, again, not on my radar of things where I thought I'd end up. Just, no. you know, I had this American passport. So I, I very early on, Lambda actually took us to America to do a showcase in, in New York. And on the back of that, one of, the, one of the soaps there that shoots in New York was sort of interested in me for a tiny bit. And um, I remember thinking, uh, this is amazingly exciting to be in New York and doing a showcase. And when I first went to L.A., it was because a couple of the LA big agents, well, I say big agents, sort of the second tier of agents would come to London every year and sit in the Dorchester, in the lobby of the Dorchester, and basically sort of welcome a, a phalanx of young actors that the English agents had lined up to parade in front of them. Um, it wasn't quite that heartless, but um, I had tea basically with yeah. J. Michael Bloom in the Dorchester, and he offered me representation then and there, um, which my then agent, Christina Shepherd, had set up in London. And so as a result, I got this sort of standing invitation to come to L.A. to go to Hollywood and see what it was like. So I had started doing that as a 25 year old actor, really thrown by L.A. I, you know, thought of myself yeah. as an American and just could not assimilate what L.A. was. I couldn't understand the buildings. They seemed to be made of cardboard. <laughs> I couldn't understand the, the, the culture, the driving, how, how private the place is. And I hated yeah. it. I really didn't like it. And I came back from that first experience thinking do you know what I don't think that's for me I don't think I'll go back there again but you know they had this they still have it some to some degree this pilot season sort of rigmarole so it comes around every year and then the pressure comes on and I would I would go back every year and have a go and Battlestar was maybe the third or fourth year that I'd, I'd gone in there to try and get something maybe even, yeah about that I'd yeah. been about three or four times and never had any luck with um, the, the pilots and this script my manager just threw it on the table. I was staying in his guest house. 
we were penniless. Kerry and I had just just discovered that we were pregnant. We weren't married. So life was a bit scary. It was one of those moments where, okay, now you've got to grow up. Yeah. You've got to provide for a young family. So LA was the obvious place to go. And that's where you rolled the dice and tried to win the lottery. And anyway, this was the script on the table. I remembered it from as a kid. I'd watched Battlestar Galactica as a five, six-year-old. So I had those hazy childhood memories, saw this script and thought, oh my goodness, why would anyone... Why would you do I mean, it was great. Why would you do that again? Anyway, I read it. The script was completely different from what I expected. And then, yeah, the casting process was uh, took about two weeks. But by the end of the two weeks, I'd won this role. And then even then, you have no idea. It was on the sci-fi channel. Cable TV making drama series was in its infancy in the US at that point. It wasn't something really that 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 sort of hit the radar so the show was a just a series of major moments where you go wow this is happening wow this is happening wow this is happening wow this is happening and I, remember, <laughs> I remember you know winning the role was just one of them playing a character called Apollo that's kind of an iconic television role was another and then the press anticipation the fan backlash and hatred that we were desecrating a, a 70s beloved yeah know, a duel in the crown of American TV um and then gradually, when it started to air, and even that was a process because the pilot only got picked up by the skin of its teeth because it was very expensive, and Sky in Britain had to come in on board. Um, and then it was somewhere in season one, once we started airing, and Time magazine and Rolling Stone and, and, and Newsweek and these big, big national publications in the US that are sort of the you know, the serious publications started to say this show, watch this show. And the Iraq war was going on, the second Iraq war at the time. And on our show, Ron um, and David, who are both sort of political science majors uh, who were writing it and producing it, they they were basically using, channeling the American uh, response to 9-11 and the Iraq war and what was deemed to be a threat to our very, you know, um, self our identity our future our survival as a as a nation in the face of this unseen un uh, you know uh, foe that walks around among us and they, they used the silence and all that as a as a metaphor for what was going on in the news and as a result it really touched a nerve and we became a, you know a real talking point on on the news we were referenced on lots of news programs and entered popular culture in a way that you don't expect for a, a show that was only getting three four five million viewers and at a time when a big hit in the us would get 20 you know we, yeah. were, we were sort of under the radar and then it grew and grew and grew and people are discovering it still today and it's still relevant i watched it in lockdown with my teenage daughters who are finally old enough and some of it really sings some of it is i was properly blown away because i couldn't remember it um and you know it, it, it's hit and miss there are some episodes and not so good but some of it's truly great and i'm very proud to have been involved. did did your children love it yeah they did yeah <laughs> they, they they really did um they really did i was surprised because i was away shooting whilst they started watching it with my wife and i came and ducked into it and i got caught up in it and then by the end they, they, for, our, for our final episode um isla my eldest put on a um um a, a sort of um battlestar themed drinks party with all, amazing all the drinks from the show and all the food and she sort of created it all up and we sat there it was really touching that she'd done that very special 
And obviously then it led to a lot more TV work. I know we're limited for time, but, you know, uh, Marcella, and obviously now we were talking about Innocent, which is now on its second season, which is going to be coming out for people to check out. Um, you must never look back now. I know you said you were sat watching people like Rylands in the in the theatre, but not knowing that TV was for you. But you are made for TV, aren't you? The, the career you've had and the, the roles you've taken on. You've just exceeded and every review I see is always highlighting just how strong you are and you must be so proud of the way that it's probably destined for you. That's very kind of you to say. I, I don't think in those terms of, about my, um, you know, my position within the whole thing. I, the thing for me is tele- I happen to have walked into a moment where television really discovered what it was. It's evolved in the yeah. last 20 years of, of, of my life. Uh, television was the poor relation. It was, you know, escapist entertainment that nobody really thought was going to last. Um, but television is just long form storytelling now. Um, serialized television is movies that you can, it's serialized movies. Uh, yes. Yeah. Really where it's found its strength. And it's got to the point where the episodic television model, you know, the, your Magnum PIs and the, the A team that I grew up with that stuff's clinging on for dear life because people are they're longing for something that they, they can dip into and out of and, and it's almost like the novel form of of um storytelling has moved from 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 novels although novels have, a very, have had a very good covid onto onto the screens and and so yeah it's a golden age it's definitely a golden age i don't think of it as television anymore no. uh, you look at the actors that are now preferring to do TV than film. And they're, they're what used to be the big movie stars. And the big movie stars of today tend to be, you know, the blockbuster movie stars, the action stars, the Marvel stars. Yeah. And, you know, they've cut their teeth in a, in a different way. So the, the serious actors that I admire, um, most of them are doing long form stories on, on television. So I just, you know, I, I, I've just, I've not made any decisions in my career. I've literally responded to what's going on. And it's got to the point now where I'm in my middle age and thinking maybe I should make some decisions and try and plan things. But everything that's happened to me has been an accident, to be honest. And um, I kind of like it that way. For me, good news, the jobs that have really changed my life have been surprises. They're not things that I have sought or developed or been involved with from a very early stage. And that's the difference now is I'm trying to be a bit more grown up and a bit more you know, I've got some a grown-up daughter now, and it's time for me to. Uh, I'm doing a bit more writing. I'm doing a bit more um, working with other producers, bringing things to market, trying to be a bit in charge of, of of where I go. I'm working with my wife, who's also starting, you know, out as a producer. So yeah, that that's the difference I I find is when you get a bit older, you you you, you know, and and look, I've had a lovely career, um, but I haven't done the jobs that I wanted to do actually, to be honest. Those ones are extremely competitive and I'm, I'm not quite, you know, getting to choose. I've always been chosen by things that I had not seen coming. And um, I'm trying to, you know, find the pleasure in what it might be like to create something from the start and actually really choose to bring something to the to the public. If you've if I wouldn't change too much if you've never made those decisions and it's just guided you and you've gone to the places that have you know took taking you there and you've been so successful you probably think to yourself I wouldn't change it too much but 
what is that tick box that would be the ideal role for you? What would be the, you know, you said you've had a good career, but you've still got, you know, years ahead of you. What would be that perfect role or that, that icing on the cake for you? Is it to be a lead in a, a huge production film or a Marvel film or a franchise? Or is there, is there something that's just, you know, just missing that you just want to accomplish? Um, at the moment, I, I've done a couple of um, auditions recently for, for real characters. And, I, and I, you know, there, there is a massive shortcut to sort of acclaim in our industry which is to portray someone that someone's from history or from yeah. recent history that everyone's very familiar with and uh and i i'm not saying that i'm playing the i want the glory of this but i just i i recently did a tape i'm not going to say what it was but and i and i just loved that um the the, the ability to sort of unhook some items that are on the shelf there that people will automatically respond to and then try to develop a character which is entirely you know has to come from within it, it it's not an imitation but using that familiarity that people have with a person so i short answer i would love to play a political figure or someone that is in the you know the, the public consciousness and try to have a spin on on someone like that i'm you know i'm, I'm not saying what the project would be in particular but I would love to play someone that's familiar and I've never done that. I've never played a historical figure um, other than, you know, Shakespearean roles and we're not yeah. familiar with actually who those individuals were anymore and they've become Shakespeare's characters. The other thing I'd like to do more of is, is, is um, as an actor anyway, is theatre. I've recently moved back to London. Yeah. Um, I am now living, you know, within a stone's throw of the West End. And uh, for me, that's the bit that I've neglected for the last 20 years. Um, I, I've done a, few theatre roles as professional but not enough and I uh yeah so so that would be the other thing um and I'm actively you know exploring lead roles in, in series and things like that and so yeah there's so much going on and plus I'm writing and I really want to I want to f finish something that I've I mean I've finished things that I've written but I want to bring stuff that I've written to to to, the, to an audience too and I haven't done managed to do that yet so that's the other great ambition I have. If next week I go on IMDb and it says Jamie Bamber announced to play Winston Churchill in new BBC One drama, I'm yeah, gonna yeah, exactly. the, we're, we're going to say thought, this is the podcast that made that happen. No, no, I'm not sure. Churchill, I'm a Churchill. Gary Oldman recently picked in the mind and done it rather well. But you know, maybe maybe there are other figures. I just yeah, because uh, you know, normally for me, I, I see a role and there's no thought of um, trying to hit certain physical postural uh vocal i'm just trying to feel it from within and yeah i would quite like to play with that sort of the, the joyful dress upness of yeah of, of hitting somebody's um you know just adopting someone's mannerisms as well and 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 and, and then using what you have inside to bring a sort of something else than they actually are historically but, but yeah my very final question for you, and I make the episodes very exclusive by letting the guest of the podcast choose the outro music. Um, it can be any song, any band, any piece of music from a film. I'm going to put you on the spot. I know we've got literally a minute left, so I just wanted to know what would be your ideal song. If I give you too long to think about it, it makes it an absolute nightmare. And I've asked the question to Anthony Hopkins, Mads Mikkelsen, everybody. What would you like to be your outro song for this episode? uh starman david bowie oh, well i saw that at glastonbury 21 years ago uh, absolute masterpiece did you oh amazing i i've never seen him live i have to say but um he's been the soundtrack of my of my sort of life ever since 
I was a teenager at school and I was driving around East Sheen in a green Morris minor with a tape deck of changes. And uh, it, that's, that's what we would listen to on a Friday night as we were, you know, dry, as I was, I was the first to drive of my friends. So I was a taxi service. Incredible. Starman would be the one. Thank you so much for your time. We've gone over, so I'm conscious um, that I need to go. And um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. So thanks yeah. for your time. Lovely to meet you. Good luck with it. Brilliant. I'll speak to you soon. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the lovely Jamie Bamba. An amazing guy, such a great guy to have on the podcast. So open, so honest and so easy to talk to. I want to say a massive thank you for Jamie for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on and I've really enjoyed it. And for everyone that's listening right now at home or wherever you are on public transport or in the car, thanks for taking the time to listen. All I ask in return for giving you these free podcasts every week is to share it on your social media networks. It costs absolutely nothing to do and I bang this drum each and every week because it's so important and really helps get the word out there for the Mark and Me podcast. And it costs you nothing, just a click of a couple of buttons. If you're on Twitter, you can retweet the episode. If you're on Facebook, you can share it amongst all your friends. Or on Instagram, you can post it as your story or on your main feed. It really does make a huge difference and I really appreciate it. And I see more and more listeners every week doing this and the numbers go up and up. So thank you. So please keep doing this and I'll be forever in debt to you. And if you've really enjoyed today's episode, I have a Patreon page. If you're new to Patreon and you don't know what this is, it's basically like buying me a coffee or giving me a cup of tea to say thanks for doing the podcast. Each and every month, thanks to the amazing Vice Press who give, in my opinion, the best posters out there. Also, Richer Sounds who, if you're going to buy a TV or a home cinema system, they're the guys to deal with. And the incredible Last Exit to Nowhere amazing film t-shirts that you will just want to buy the lot all those guys each and every month come and bring some incredible prizes and that's my way of saying thank you for supporting the podcast you'll always get the podcast for free but if you just feel like giving me a quid or two do this via my patreon and you can be in the chance of winning some amazing prizes and all that goes back into the podcast allows me to go out there travel the country and do more and more interviews for you guys at home so it really is a win-win and it really goes a long way so please if you've enjoyed today just buy me a cup of tea it really helps I'll be back in only a few days time it's really busy as always I've had a week off for my birthday recently but I'm back now and I'm not slowing down so I'll be back with a brand new episode very soon so until then look after yourself take care be safe and I'll see you all soon
switch on.